Well, uh, sometimes you'll come across a passage that is really difficult because of something grammatical, it's the construction of the sentences are difficult. Sometimes you'll come across a passage that's really difficult, uh, even though it's simple. It's simply put. But it's difficult because of some other reason. Sometimes that reason is uh, our cultural distance. Sometimes that reason is other notions that we have that we bring to the text. We bring baggage to the passage, and that baggage, we need to work through that clutter to figure out, okay, why am I having a hard time with a passage that's actually quite simple? And one of those pieces of text would be what we're going to see today, which is a short two verses in 1 Timothy, but the buzzword is slavery. This isn't the only verse as you read through the Old Testament, as you read through the New Testament. Over and over again, you'll see the slavery topic come up, but what you don't see is the prophets or the apostles saying, get rid of slavery, get get rid of slavery is bad, get rid of it. They never say that. And so what you'll hear from outside of Christianity are critiques from atheists. Any of you who go on YouTube uh, and watch debates between atheists and Christian apologists, you know one of the top three things that's going to come out. I mean, you are uh, major ignorant and ill-prepared for that debate if you're not ready for the slavery argument. The Bible has slavery in it, and we all know that's wrong. So if the Bible approves something as evil and as horrid as slavery, how can you possibly take anything else in the Bible seriously? Now, you've got to be ready for that. Because it's not just the atheists on debate stages bringing that up. If you want to talk to your coworker about the gospel, if you want to talk to your neighbor about the gospel, if you're trying to raise your kids according to the gospel, and your kids are going to hear this from teachers, from friends, what do you say about the Bible? Is it, just an, it's an, is it an embarrassing truth that the Bible talks about slavery but doesn't call for a complete eradication of it? I mean, is that something we should be embarrassed by? Should we pretend it's not there? I know, I know, that's there, but, but Jesus on the cross, you know, try to get to something else. Well, I think there are the misunderstandings uh, surrounding slavery as it's presented to us in the Bible make us sheepish about it. We don't know how to defend it. We don't know what to say when it's brought up. We want to change topics. You've got Christians inside the church that would use the slavery thing as an excuse to not obey other parts of Scripture. I mean, they're Christians, but, you know, when you get to the passage about wives submitting to husbands, well, well, yeah, but it also says slaves submit to masters, and we know that's wrong, so why should wives submit to husbands? Weirdly enough, they don't say, why should children submit to parents? They're okay with that part. But they'll use the slave-master thing to now excuse disobeying other clear texts. Well, the Bible obviously wasn't forward enough, wasn't progressive enough. They didn't realize, oh, this thing is actually an ugly thing. And so maybe they didn't realize that complementarianism is an ugly thing. Maybe they didn't realize that uh, parents having authority over children is an ugly thing. Maybe we should just give them trophies for being bullies. Well, brothers and sisters, I think before we dive into two verses... We need a long intro, and we need a long intro with a stand with some notes this morning because there's a lot of clutter regarding the issue of slavery. 
almost feel like asking you to pray with me again, <laughs> but I won't. Just be praying in your hearts, and we'll get right to it. Those of you who are note takers, uh, I hope your pens aren't low on ink. Um, and for those of you who want to track down further notes and, and look up the footnotes and, and verify the research, I commend to you a book called Slave of Christ by Murray Harris. Um, it's put out by IVP in 2001 in a biblical theology series, Murray Harris, Slave of Christ, and his first couple chapters there I'm drawing heavily from. But I hope that this will help us get clear of some of the clutter surrounding the slavery stuff so that we can see what is actually there in the text. Right? We live in a time and we live in a culture and we live in a society where uh, we have to recognize the clutter. It's there. And at first glance, our text can be confusing because of these issues. Let's just read it. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you need a Bible, you can slip your hand up, of course, we'll, we'll bring you one. 1 Timothy chapter 6, two verses, and pretty simply put, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants, you're under a yoke as, now bondservants, often there's translated slaves, uh, was translated slave for a really long time. But then after the abolition of slavery in this country, it's like, well, how do we help people read this without immediately going, ugh, slavery? Well, how about bond servants? Yeah, same thing. Slave. Let all who are under a yoke of slavery, the yoke as bond servants, what should they do? Cast it off? Revolt? Rebuke the master? No, regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. Ugh. So that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Yikes. Those who have believing masters, wait a minute. Why wouldn't a master who gets saved just suddenly be like, oh my goodness, this is, this is terrible. Let the slave free. Paul's going, no, there are believing masters. What? And what should you do? What should a Christian slave do with a Christian master? Yeah, regard them. Honor them. Obey them. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So Paul doesn't call to run away. Paul's call is not to rebuke the, the Christian master. Paul's call is to serve better now that you're a Christian. Be the best slave out there to honor God's name. Yeah, that's what it says. No grammatical trickery. It's not difficult sentences. What's going on? Well, first, we need to understand that slavery in the Bible, we need to understand slavery in the Bible in its context, not ours. Slavery in the Bible in its context, not our context. And we always come to the Bible with lenses, right? When we see words, we see those words the way we see those words in movies and the way we see those words in the novels that we read and then in the history books. But we need to come from the text where the text has its own background and not foist our background onto the text. And so when you're reading about slavery in the Bible, you've got to think not of American slavery or New World slavery. You've got to think of Jewish, Greek, Roman slavery, and especially the Roman context in this passage specifically. 
I think the, the Roman context is the most per- pertinent context here. And in this time, one-third of everyone was a slave. I mean, two out of every five or six people was a slave of some kind, of very many different kinds of slaves. We're talking about a lot of people. And, of course, they were in the church. When, when Paul is writing to Timothy, he's, he knows Timothy's leading this church in Ephesus, and he knows it's full of slaves there. And they, they served in a wide range of roles, everywhere from criminals that were consigned to chain gangs all the way to farmers, uh, business managers, uh, physicians, doctors, right? So slaves served in all kinds of different roles, and essentially any role that was offered to a free person, you could also see a slave serving in that role. So it wasn't slaves are for sweeping the streets and then only free people can be physicians. You can be anything, pretty much, as a slave. Some slaves own slaves. I mean, it just was a a different kind of system. Now, some slaves were captured in war, and by virtue of their being POWs, they were consigned to being slaves. Some fell into slavery because they incurred debt. So those are a couple different examples. Now, slavery is not beautiful. Slavery is not ideal. But there are some key differences. The slavery that Paul has in mind versus the slavery that we might have in mind when we go, ah! There are some some key differences. And I don't want you to take anything I'm saying now as, we should bring slavery back. It's actually a great thing. The Bible doesn't condone it. What we're talking about is why doesn't the Bible repudiate it? And it does neither one. So here are some of the key differences, if you want to write them down for help when you're talking to people that bring this up. Uh, Some key differences in slavery from this context in the Bible to the transatlantic slavery that we think of. Um, First, slaves weren't distinguishable by race, speech, or clothing. It wasn't race-based. Second, sometimes uh, slaves were more educated than their owners, and they held responsible responsibilities in professional positions. There's a difference. Slaves could reasonably hope to be emancipated after 10 to 20 years, and by and large, by the time they hit their 30s, they would be uh, manumitted, let go, let, let free. That wasn't guaranteed, but it was a very real possibility, very common, and actually was... Uh, less common to, to be sort of stuck there for life. They weren't denied the right of public assembly. They were not socially segregated, at least in the cities. Um, a slave could accumulate savings to purchase their freedom. That was another way out. And then importantly, their, their inferiority was not assumed. Their, their natural inferiority was not assumed. They're a lesser person, so of course they should be a slave. That was never why they were slaves. Those are important differences. Of course, there's, there are similarities. Of course, a slave is totally dependent on the master. A slave is supposed to obey the master. A slave does what the master says. That's the deal. This is why we're so often referred to as slaves in the Bible. We're slaves of Christ. We're slaves of God. Now, when we see that in the text, you're a slave of Christ. Don't you know you're a slave to Christ? Christ? 
What do we think there? That Christ is kidnapping us? Ripping us away from our families? Do we think that Christ absconded with us illegally somehow? That he abuses us? Exploits us? No, we don't think that. We just think he owns us. He has rightful ownership over us. Now, in this world, that was a legitimate thing. Some slaves were rightfully owned by their masters, and it doesn't automatically assume exploitation or abuse. And that's why the Bible can talk to it, refer to us as slaves of God and slaves of Christ. So the New Testament views slavery a certain way. It assumes it. It's a given. Right? The, the, the Old Testament nor the New Testament says, hey, here's a good idea, go get you a slave. Never says that. It just assumes that when you're writing a letter to a church, the church has slaves in it. But when you're talking about a people group, you've got, you've got slaves in this day. And so it assumes it, but that's not the same as condoning it or endorsing it. It, it doesn't do that. And that's an important distinction. When you're talking to somebody, they say, how come the Bible endorses slavery? Show me the verse. Then they'll show you a verse that assumes slavery, and then you say, that's the difference. Then they can ask, well, why does it assume it? Well, we can talk about that. It assumes lots of things, but doesn't condone them. You can think about divorce, for instance. The Bible never says, go get divorce. It regulates it because the Bible assumes people are going to divorce. But then Jesus says, that's not a good thing. You shouldn't divorce. Remember the Pharisee said, how come, how come Moses commanded that we divorce? And Jesus said, no, he didn't. He said, when you divorce, do it this way. So th- those are, that's an important distinction to, to point out. We need to point that out. And so you read texts like this. He knows that many of them are bondservants. He knows that many of them in the church of Ephesus are masters. And he's regulating the relationship, not saying, uh, if your church doesn't have slaves, well, that's the first thing you need to do is go install elders, appoint deacons, and make sure they're slaves. He, he doesn't say that. He assumes it. He wants to regulate it. So, if slavery was evil in every form, just this utterly evil thing, it's, then it would be hard to see this. But if you see that slavery wasn't always that, then it makes a little more sense, especially when you take into the fact that there are things about slavery that the Bible repudiates. Things about slavery that the Bible says that is evil. That is evil to do that. And the first one is the abuse of the slave or unfair treatment of the slave. Colossians 4.1 says, Masters, treat your bondservants, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You're going to report to a greater master So the ones that you're a master of, humanly speaking, you better treat them with respect. You better treat them fairly. You better not abuse them or exploit them because you're going to report to God one day. Ephesians 6 verse 9 says, Masters, essentially do good to your bondservants. And it says, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Don't treat them as a lesser person. Don't threaten them. If you don't do this, I'm going to. Don't do that. Not even verbal threats are allowed, let alone harsh punishments. The Bible talks about stealing and kidnapping for slavery and immediately says that's wrong. If you look in this same book, 1 Timothy, 
If you remember back up in chapter 1, look at verse 9. 1 Timothy 1, verse 9. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. Well, what do those people look like? Unholy people, profane people, ungodly people. What do they look like? Well, it's for those who strike their fathers and mothers. It's for murderers. It's for the sexually immoral. It's for men who practice homosexuality. Enslavers. There's a fast one to skip. Also one word in the Greek. Man-stealers. It's evil. Now you might be like, well, what's the difference? How, how, why else would anybody be a slave unless they were stolen onto it? Yeah, that's what we have a difficulty imagining. Because the slavery in our recent history was that kind. Nobody signed up for slavery, but in this day, you could sign up for slavery. And in fact, signing up for slavery was common. For example, getting out of debt. So Paul does not have in mind in chapter 6, verse 1, the kind of slavery that he has in mind in chapter 1, verse 9 and following. You see it right there in the text. This is evil, and then he's assuming Christians aren't doing that kind of uh, set up of slavery. And so stealing for slavery, kidnapping for slavery, trafficking in slavery is evil and it's abhorrent. It is ungodly and it is profane. Exodus chapter 21 verse 16 prescribes the death penalty for stealing people to make them slaves. He tells Israel, if you do that, you should die. Anyone among you who steals someone else to become a slave, kill him. That's what the Bible has to say about that. So, of course, the kind of slavery in our history as a nation is horrible, and it is wicked, and it is evil, and the Bible does repudiate it. And don't let someone tell you different. Go to the text. Now, no form of slavery is ideal for any society, but the New World slavery abused and stole people and enslaved people, and we need to be clear that that's absolutely wicked. I don't want us to too quickly say, yeah, 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 that was in the past. Move on, as if that wasn't horrible. We should lament with our brothers and sisters that are still reeling from the effects of that kind of slavery and not just say, hey, that was in the past. That's not that far in the past. How do we have brothers and sisters within our churches, even nearby, that know their great-grandfather, who for that person wasn't some, in some distant past, but actually really quite recent. And to pretend like that doesn't have any lingering effects, I think is to our shame. We don't want to quickly, too quickly shut the mouths of those lamenting the tragedy of slavery by going, that's not the kind of slavery. No. We should recognize that it's wicked. I know it's difficult. And especially in light of many who would now say, no matter 
what you've done in your life, if you were the great-grandson of somebody who was a slave, you're guilty. Well, that's not correct either. But some of that anger and some of that rage comes out of our inability and unwillingness to listen to their plight. You're free. Stop complaining. What kind of heart does that response come from? You have equal opportunity. It's not systemic. It's not societal. Shut up. Let's have our debates and let's talk about how to move forward. But it shouldn't start with an inability to listen to pain and grief that is still very real and recent for our brothers and sisters who are only a couple generations removed from this stuff. Now, the New Testament does prescribe a remedy. The New Testament does prescribe a remedy for slavery of all kinds. And here's some ways that it does that. I'll just run a few of these before we get to our text. The New Testament focuses on obligations rather than rights. He knows the slave is like, I have the right to not be a slave. I have the right to to not have to obey another man. I'm a slave of Christ, don't you know? Rights. And then the master goes, I have the right to be heavy-handed. He didn't do the work he's supposed to do. I have rights. And Paul is not saying that there are no rights, but he's focusing rather than on rights, he's focusing on obligations. Fulfill your obligation. Another aspect that we see that the New Testament does to sort of upend slavery from within is that he elev- the, the New Testament elevates slaves to equal status with masters, and that was distinct. How do you have Paul telling the Galatians, in Christ there is no slave or free? And then in other verses, he's like, hey, slaves, obey your master. Well, which one is it? I thought there was, yeah, Paul also said there's no male and female. That doesn't mean there is no distinction. He just means equal status between males and females, equal status between slave and free. And that was distinct, and that was new for the church to be uh, hammering that home. Again, masters have to behave knowing that they will report to their greater master, and Paul makes that clear. So he's making sure that masters understand they are accountable to this heavenly master. And then the relationship between the Christian master and the slave, Paul wants to reorient that relationship Rather than sort of a business transaction, he wants to reorient that relationship around a brotherhood. That's different. And you see that when he writes to Philemon. You remember Philemon? He was, Philemon is a Christian slave owner, and his slave ran away with some of his stuff. An unbeliever at the time Onesimus was. Now, we don't know all the details, but presumably Paul ran into Onesimus, maybe because of a mutual friend, it might have been Epaphras, and Onesimus gets saved. Now, there's the perfect opportunity for Paul to go, see, you're free in Christ. Don't return back to some human slave. No, in fact, the opposite. Paul says, now that you're a Christian, Christians fulfill their obligations, and your legal obligation is to this man that you were supposed to serve and that you stole stuff from. Now, go back. Go back and serve as a Christian brother now. But go with this letter. And then he gives Onesimus a letter to take to Philemon. Onesimus goes to Philemon, and maybe Philemon's angry. 
And he's like, I know I messed up. Can you just please read this letter? I can't believe you. Can you please read this letter? And, and Philemon opens up this letter, and he knows it's from Paul, and they've met before, presumably they're friends. And, and Paul essentially is like, I know you have the right to be harsh with Onesimus. I know you have the right to demand stuff back from him. Take it from my account. Everything he stole from you, take it from me. Now, that's, that's messed up, man, right? Like, <laughs> could you imagine the predicament that puts Philemon in? You really want your stuff back? But Paul is like, you know the chief apostle, the, the main guy that's planting all these churches? Remember the guy that was uh, instrumental in your being saved? Yeah, take it from my account. Well, you can't tell him no, but if you take him up on it, you're, you're, you're taking from this minister that's got to make tents by hand to make a living so he can keep preaching? This guy who keeps getting flogged and beaten up and thrown out of cities, you're going to take money from that dude? That's Paul's way of helping Onesimus. Philemon, you have the right, but take it, take it from my account. Well, he knows Philemon is going to let that go. And if you read the letter, Paul doesn't quite say, hey, just let him free. He seems to hint toward that. Hey, he's your brother. Treat him like a brother in Christ. What would you do with a brother? What would you do with a family member? Under the subtext seems to be like, would you keep him enslaved? Would you demand all your debt? Would you demand that he finish his obligation? You have the freedom to set him free. And so you see Paul going, I, we're not trying to do this from the outside and change Roman culture, but we can do it from the inside. And you can be a different kind of master, the kind of master that maybe doesn't take 10 to 20 years to manumit the slave, to set him free. Maybe it doesn't take 10 to 20 years. Maybe you can do it now and release him of the obligation. What Paul doesn't like about slavery, when you read between the lines, it's not that slavery resulted from kidnapping. He, would, he repudiates that. What he doesn't like about slavery is that he doesn't want you to owe anyone anything, Romans 13. Owe no one anything. Only owe love and only be indebted to Christ. And slavery is indebtedness. You can't be free until you pay off this debt. or You can't be free until you fulfill certain obligations and then maybe the master will set you free when they feel like the demands have been met. And he doesn't want that set up for you. And so he writes Philemon and encourages to, to Philemon, I know you're going to do above and beyond what I'm asking you to do. He's asking him to forget the debt. What's above and beyond that? What do you think? Just let him go, man. Just let him go. So we see Paul addressing that. You can think of that song that we're going to be uh, hearing a lot soon, um, if it's up to some of y'all, we're already hearing it, but Christmas songs really should be appropriately played after Thanksgiving. I'm just kidding, I don't know. That line in O Holy Night, chains shall he break? Why? For the slave is our brother. The New Testament doesn't want to change slavery from law, changing the law. The New Testament wants to change slavery by changing your relationship with the slave. Is he your brother? Well, then break the chain then. Why would you enslave a brother? That's the New Testament voice. It's interesting when you read 1 Corinthians 7, Paul, it, it, it's a difficult word for many, but he says, I, I want all of you to remain the way you were when you got saved. You know, were, were, were you... Were you married when you got saved? Say married. Are you single when you got saved? Say single. It's really great for the church, for single people that have lots of energy and time 
uh, and open calendar slots to do a lot of great things for the church. Just I, I commend you to stay. Uh, were you a slave? Don't let it trouble you, he says. And then in parentheses, but if you can, that's the one situation I want you to change. If you're able to gain your freedom, gain it. So to everybody else, he says, stay put. The way you are when you got saved, just stay that way. Don't start using conversion as an excuse to flip your life around. Unless you're a slave, then I do want you to flip that around. If, you are, if, if, if freedom is available, get it. Uh, presumably, there were many who would be comfortable in slavery. As long as my owner, master, has a successful business, I don't have to worry about stuff out there. I have a comfortable life. I have a, I have a, a practice as a physician because of the structure provided to me by my master. Those of you who watch like, like Downton Abbey, you, you see how s- servants of certain households are subservient to servants of other households, Right? I mean, if you're serving royalty, you can look down on servants of anybody else, duke, earl, that doesn't matter because you serve the queen. And there's this, you imagine, no, just, just get out of there and go live a life on your own. Go get an apartment in, you know, by Heathrow somewhere by yourself. Uh, no, I prefer the mansion, thank you very much. And Paul would tell that person, no, freedom is better than comfort. Get the freedom if you're able to get it. And so Paul is countercultural in that way. And he says, very plainly in that text in 1 Corinthians 7, do not become bondservants of men. Do not become slaves of men. Why would he need to say that if no one was going, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to go down to the office and I'm going to go sign up to be a slave in some house. Now, in our minds, we're like, nobody would ever do that. Well, they did. They did do it. And Paul's command is, if you're free now, don't go into slavery because it's, it's a form of debt. Don't do it. Be free. Even if it looks comfortable, even if you can sign up to the, a real hoity-toity family, you know, you've got half the mansion is yours. Don't do it. Stay free. Finally, we need to be realistic about our desire to see the New Testament do what we want the New Testament to say about slavery. They should have led the charge. They should have made it clear we need to abolish slavery. They should have just said it. There should be a whole, a whole epistle about it. Abolish slavery. We need to be realistic about that. First of all, because then there was the possibility of emancipation. Whereas in American slavery, there really wasn't. In this context, it was possible to be set free. It was possible, whether through saving money, they did make money. They could save money and and purchase their freedom, or the the master would say, hey, you know what, you're in your 30s now, you know. I got someone else working now. Just go ahead and enjoy your retirement. You also have to recognize that there were no revolts that were even close to successful. The closest revolt to success was Spartacus. I mean, that's not just Hollywood, but in the early 70s BC, Spartacus led probably the, the biggest revolt. If anyone was going to succeed, it would be Spartacus. And how does Spartacus' story end? Spoilers for some of you who haven't seen it. Not the new one, not the new one, the old one. It ends in the crucifixion of 6,000 slaves lining the road from Capua to Rome. That's how that ended. Now, if Christianity were to say, no, this is going to be our mission, this is going to be our social cause, is to upend revolution, they just would have all died for the wrong reasons. Instead of getting killed 
for proclaiming Christ, they just would have been wiped out for going, oh, I get it. You guys aren't really serving Christ. This is just, this is just a social agenda. Well, it wasn't a social agenda. And so it's unrealistic to expect that of a church. It's unrealistic to expect that of the early church when they weren't in significant roles. The early church didn't have a platform for societal change. They weren't going to voting booths. This is Rome. This wasn't, if you tweet it enough, the people will come. Like, you couldn't build a platform through Instagram. They didn't have a platform. And they weren't able to incite changes on societal levels, structural levels. Finally, and I think most importantly, Christians were firstly concerned with societal change at the personal and individual level rather than the structural level. The gospel is to change the individual. And if the individual is a master, he's going to master different. If the individual is a slave, he's going to serve differently. If the, if the individual is a teacher, he or she is going to teach differently. The life changes because the individual has changed, not because Rome decided to change a law. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be socially involved I'm not saying who cares how we vote. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is unfair to expect the apostles to do something that, that wasn't an avenue. Now, when it became an avenue, some people will tell you Christianity has nothing to do with it. But that's just silly. To think that the abolition of slavery had nothing to do with the gospel. Christianity played the key role, if not an essential role, in the eventual destruction of slavery. But it started with the changed hearts within the abolitionists and social reformers themselves. So here we see Paul. He brings up slavery. Obviously, he doesn't have a kidnapping form type of slavery in his mind in this text because he already repudiated it in chapter 1. But he still presses the gospel into the slave-master relationship in this text. So let's quickly look at these couple verses and then we'll talk about how we should respond as Christians. Verse 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters, their own masters, you're not supposed to regard everybody, you're only a slave to the one dude. But when it comes to that one person, you regard that person with respect. You regard that person as worthy of all honor. That is a difficult task. He's asking the slave not to serve like, oh, I can't believe you call yourself a Christian. You're making me cut these potatoes. No, with honor, I'll gladly cut these potatoes. What else do you want? And so he's raising the bar on it for the Christian servant. Why? Because God right now is looking at how you perform in the situation that you're in, and he doesn't want to see you demanding rights. He wants to see you serving somebody else with your heart. And with honor, because that honors him. Not, I should be on top. I should have equal state. You should be cutting potatoes for me. I'm more educated than you are. No. Christ didn't do that. So you honor your heavenly master when you honor the people in this life, in the situations that you're in, that are over you. Then... He doesn't want us to use our brotherhood in Christ as an excuse for disrespect at the end of verse, or the beginning of verse 2. 
those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. You can't say, well, you're a Christian, so how dare you tell me what to do? You know, if you're a Christian, that we're equal, that there's no slave or free, male or female, there's no Greek or Jew, so, so why are you talking down to me when there's a flat level here? And Paul's saying, no, societal structures remain intact, and if the situation that you're in, if you're an employee and you have a Christian employer, you can't just be showing up late. And when the employer tells you, hey, you shouldn't be late, hey, we're brothers. We're brothers, man. No, Paul's saying, if he's a Christian, if, if he's a non-Christian employer, you better show up on time. If he's a Christian employer, you better really show up on time. Because not only are you serving a higher master, but you know you're helping a brother. You're helping a sister. And that should incite more vigor in your service, not less. Now, I'm not saying that slavery is the same as employee-employer relationship. But I think the, the undergirding principle is when you are in a situation and there's someone over you, the drill sergeant tells you to do push-ups. You don't go, well, he's a Christian drill sergeant. I can slack on the push-ups because wink, wink, he knows I'm a brother. You better get down. You better push that ground. Especially if the sergeant is a Christian. And I think sometimes we are tempted to be a little bit slack toward one another. We can be tempted sometimes to be slack toward one another in church. We give 100% of our energy to our secular employers, but if we're asked to do something in church, do we sometimes give leftover energy? If somebody pays you top dollar to do something, and you do it with fervor then, but if a Christian asks you for a favor and you say yes to it, do you kind of give leftover energy to that? Paul's saying, do that like you were getting paid, brother, because you're serving a brother. Do that, sister, like you're getting paid for it because you're serving a sister. It raises the bar. It doesn't lower the bar. We don't want to go, yeah, he's a Christian. We go to the same church. He understands. No, we don't understand. Don't give the church your leftovers. Honor the people that you decide to serve, whether it's through your spiritual gifts or out there in the workforce or in the military or whatever situation you find yourself where you have people over you and around you. Serve them with energy because that honors God. And let's not use excuses to lessen the energy that we bring to our work. We honor God when we honor those, especially those who are over us. We should serve all the better. You see that in the end of verse 2. He says, rather, they must serve all the better. Since those who benefit by the good service, by their good service, are believers and beloved. You love them, and that's why you serve them well. Well, we need to fulfill our obligations well. We need to fulfill our obligations with honor and respect because that's how we honor the Lord. Now, we thankfully do not live in a time and in a place where I can address any of you as professional bondservants or slaves. Thank God for that. It's, it's not the best system. There are other whack systems that are still in place in our government today that we won't talk about right now. But certainly, uh, bond service like that even though it's not on the wicked plane of uh, man-stealing, it's not ideal. It's not ideal for a society. 
but the undergirding principle has to press into unideal situations that you might find yourself in. You're working for a company that doesn't treat employees well. Don't start undercutting the work that you said you would do because you're excusing it because of some things that the company's doing. You're better than that because you're a Christian. And when we get the opportunity to serve one another, we serve one another with zeal and effort because we love one another and we put others' interests before our own. And so we don't dial it in just because somebody is familiar or family. We raise it. We raise it, and that honors the Lord. Let's pray.